pray with me. God, today we want to uh, think about and, and think about the power of what you did on the cross for us. God, we want to be reminded of kind of the, the, the sacrifice, the, what was at stake when you went to the cross. God, I want us to be a reminder today of, of who you want us to be, of the sacrifices and the challenges that we face in this life as well. And God, I just pray that as we do that, that we would approach this with all of the kind of the mentality that, that remembers what you did, but also celebrates the future that you've provided for us. And so we thank you for the cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few, few weeks, we've been challenging you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We have been thinking about, despite all of what goes on in your life, despite all of the challenges and the hardships, that Jesus Christ gave his life. We have been focusing on him, and in light of him, in light of what he did for us, that everything else that we are facing in our lives, it must be seen in light of what Christ did for us on the cross. And I really do want to approach this topic today with the kind of reverence that I think the cross deserves. And so that's going to be how I handle the text today. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and 4. Hebrews 12 has been our text for this uh, series. And it, verse 3 says this, Consider him, Christ, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, Christ, consider him who went through so much for us. He was opposed by sinners. He was brought to the cross so that when you think about that, you can endure, you can stay faithful, and you can not grow weary and lose heart. Now, when this was being written, the Christians had not yet become martyrs to the level that they would become martyrs. There were not as many at this point. But a couple of chapters before this, earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, we read, that they had been publicly humiliated, that Christians had their poverty, their property confiscated, that they had been imprisoned. And so they're going to need to stand firm, not only now, but in the persecution that's about to come. And it doesn't surprise us that they were about to face persecution, because our leader, Christ, said that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Christ's life endured such harsh struggles. And, of course, the most significant physical and emotional and spiritual struggle that was ever in the human history was the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross represents all of the punishment, all of the sin of the world and the punishment of God laid upon Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, the Hebrew writer says, Remember those who early in the early days, after you had received the light, that you endured in great conflict, Full of suffering. In other words, what he's saying is, you remember, Hebrews, that time where earlier, just not long ago, when you received the light, when you became a Christian, you endured a great conflict, and he's saying, you're going to endure even more conflict in the future. Now, there was a price tag that was attached to being a Christ follower. If you identified yourself with the, with the church back in the first century, there was intense suffering that often accompanied it. And the Hebrew writer is preparing them that things are going to get worse before they get better. And so they should expect this intense persecution because Christ is worth following. Now this message is a far cry from what often is said in American Christianity today. 
Where in American Christianity we say God is the God of prosperity. God is the God of blessing. God is the God who just gives. And so you won't face the hardship. And if you do face hardship, it's because you don't have enough faith. And I think that's completely false. I mean, then you have to say to the Apostle Paul, did you not have enough faith? Because they beheaded you. Peter, did you not have enough faith? Because they crucified you. All of those early believers. What about the man who came first hour today, just in our worship center from Belgium? He's talking about the persecution even that he faces as a, as a street evangelist and from his government. And so here in America, we think, well, God doesn't love us if there is persecution. But I want to make certain that you catch this. A concept of a carefree life, a totally free of stress, struggling and suffering, free of struggling and suffering, is the opposite of the Christian life. It stands in stark contrast to what Jesus predicted and what he talked about in his word. He does not promise that we will have a carefree life. In fact, he said, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not, I have overcome the world. He promises, though, that he will be with you, that he will walk with you, that he will be beside you, and that he will live right there with you during that struggle. That's the power of the cross. That Jesus showed us the good struggle, a struggle that produces fruit and suffering. He does not abandon you. He does not leave you isolated and in despair or in the midst of suffering. That's why the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the trials in your life develop perseverance and develop character. And how many of you, have, you know that? You know through the hardship of your life, that's where you develop those deep roots. When you went through the hard time, when you went through the fire, when you went through the storm, that's where you begin to trust more than you ever had before. George Barna said, God loves people enough to allow them to experience a crisis in their lives because brokenness can lead them to become fully dependent on him. And while God does not offer crisis, he does allow it. He allows us to experience it so that we can realize and recognize his love on a deeper level. And in light of that, I want to just kind of outline today for you three areas of struggle, three areas where I think we should all uh, rely on the Lord. And one of those is in the struggle against sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And this allusion is, this alluded to a time where they would be in the arena fighting against someone. Back to the Grecian games. And there would be someone who's going to be fighting to the point of shedding their blood. And he's saying, that's the kind of struggle against sin that you should have. Rather than just allowing it, rather than just being like, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. There should be this conflict in our spirit. There should be this struggle against sin. And he's saying, well, you may have struggled against sin, but you certainly haven't struggled to the point of shedding your blood over it. You ever heard that phrase, the struggle is real? Well, there's ever a phrase that could wrap up, really, Jesus' 33 years on this earth, it would be that. The struggle for him was real. There were ups and there were downs that he experienced. There were heavy trials. There were temptations. There was a group of people that were after him that wanted to kill him. And Jesus said, if they're going to they're gonna persecute me, they're going to persecute you. You're going to have people lie against you. You're going to have people try to get the upper hand. You ever been there? You ever had a teammate or a roommate lie about you? Maybe a person at work was vying for the same promotion that you wanted and they began to circulate some untrue rumors about you? You ever had someone take a shot at you or one of your family members? You ever had someone say something against you or against your spouse and it hurt a lot? Ever had your character maligned? 
Jesus faced all of that and more. He faced individuals that wanted to take him out, literally. But he chose to face the cross so that we might be able to be saved. He knows what it's like to be maligned, to misunderstood and mistreated, and to be hurt by people when you're innocent. And he knows what it's like to, to be in the middle of that struggle. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible says he struggled to the point of blood. In fact, the Bible says that it was so intense that he sweat like drops of blood out of his forehead. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. And on the night he was betrayed, he reminded his disciples of the struggle with sin, that there was temptation, but he was sinless. He forewarned those individuals of the challenges they were going to face. All of them were going to abandon him. But then even more than that, there was going to come a day where they were all going to face persecution. And he was saying, take heart. I know that the struggle is real, but take heart. Continue to fight against it. Fight violently against that sin in your life and stay faithful to me. So, don't be surprised by the struggle. Don't be overwhelmed by the struggle. And make certain of this, that you face those situations. Know they're coming, but know this, you do not face those struggles alone. The first struggle is against sin. The second struggle is the struggle with submission. And we all struggle with that. Now, we have a new dog. You guys know Bailey. Uh, Bailey is uh, becoming bigger. Josh talked about his kids. I talk about our dog. And uh, this dog is now almost the same size as Chase in just three months. And uh, it's happening very fast. Um, pray for Lisa. She's really, she's, a, she's good with Bailey. Uh, I get a little bit more frustrated. She gets, she's patient most of the time. And she's there with the dog all day. And she's on alert all the time because there might be accidents that happen. Um, I've thought about a doggy diaper, but I didn't think that would help long term. So we're still just cleaning up things, you know, messes. But for the most part, when she goes outside, a lot of great Pyrenees dogs, they're wanderers. But our dog's been great, goes outside, comes right back to the door. But that's because it's been like zero below zero. Or you know what I'm saying? It's been ridiculous outside. Well, yesterday, 15 minutes before the interns were supposed to show up at our house, we're going to have a big gathering at our house last night. Bailey just decides to take off. Bailey has a submission problem. How many know what I'm talking about? And uh, I went out there, and now it becomes a game. I'm like, hey, come. I'm trying to be happy because I don't want it to think that I'm about to, like, you know, tear into it. But anyway, so I'm like, hey, come, come, come. And uh, then it's running off. goes across the street even. goes into neighbor's yards. I'm yelling. Literally about two minutes before the interns show up, finally Bailey comes in, but that's because Lisa came outside, you know, the mother and like the dog's like wow you know it's been running all over the yard for me it's like runs right up to her I don't I don't know what's wrong with that but but why do I do that why did we go after that dog well there's a street in front of our house and, and I really I mean I could just be like fine run why I don't care but I do care I really want the dog to learn to come I really want the dog to learn to submit not for my benefit but for the dog's benefit I wanted to learn what it means to be okay to simply come inside. We all have a submission issue from time to time. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 talks about this, and it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. In other words, some of the hardship in our life, not all of it, but some of the hardship in our life, we bring upon ourselves. 
some of the hardship in our life, God brings our way so that we might be able to trust him more, so that we might be submitting to him. There is discipline. What father does not love his child if he doesn't discipline? And he goes on to say, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? In other words, how much more, because we trust God, because we love him, do we submit to him? God the Father is worthy of our praise, but also of our obedience. We need to trust his plan. We need to accept his will for our lives, including the successes and the struggles and the sufferings. What we're saying is, God, we submit to you out of obedience when things are good and when things are bad. Now, you can know that Jesus Christ had to struggle as well. He struggled with that idea of, uh, God, I... I don't know if I want this to happen. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus accepted the Father's discipline, but it was not a discipline for him. It was a discipline that you and I deserve. And it was a discipline that he didn't even, he didn't even deserve at all, and yet he was willing to submit to that because that was the salvation of the world. And the Bible says that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In other words, may this cup of suffering, is there another way? And then he says, and he submits in this moment, and he says, but Father, not my will, your will be done. Did you know the word Gethsemane means olive press? And when we were in Israel, we saw a huge olive press from the first century out of stone. And there was a larger stone that rolled around that that basin there, and they would put the olives there into that basin, and they would roll that stone over it, and the, the juice from the olives would come down. They would press the olives once. The juice would come out. Then they would press them again, and then they would press them again, almost so much so that there was nothing left. And it's interesting that the word Gethsemane means olive press. And for them... It, they knew what it meant when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of the olive press, the place where he would be bruised, where he would be crushed, where he, everything in him would be poured out for our sin. Luke twenty two forty four actually says, In anguish Jesus prayed, sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. 1 Corinthians six twenty says, You were bought with a price. The price was the blood of Christ. And... Uh, he suffered for us. First Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus endured suffering. He submitted to the Father. And so listen, he struggled against sin. He fought against temptation. Like a, like a, like a gladiator in the arena, he fought against the temptation and he won. He says, struggle struggle even to that point against it and he says then be willing to submit submit to the father and his will in your life and even the discipline and the hardship that he provides and then there's this other struggle which is the struggle of sacrifice jesus of course was the ultimate sacrifice in every moment where he could have been elevated he lowered himself as a servant whether he was stooping down to wash dirty feet of his fellow followers or whether he was being raised up on a tree to pay for the sins of the world he endured all of that as a servant and a sacrifice. And the cross was his most powerful message to us because in his death, he covered our sin. He connected us to God and he sacrificed in every moment, the point of death and beyond 
so that he would teach us that sacrifice matters. Here the Bible says, no greater sacrifice has anyone than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. That's why Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's focus on him. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross for joy. You say, well, why would someone endure pain for joy? Well, moms, you know what I'm talking about. For nine months, you had that little baby growing inside of you. And you had your ankles swelling up. You had the uncomfortable feeling of walking around with all this extra weight. You got sick in the morning. You craved things that people should not crave. This all happened over nine months. And when the moment of glory happens... That moment comes with a lot of pain and suffering. But when the baby is born, there is a tremendous amount of joy. I have a feeling that we know a little bit about what it means to have pain, to sacrifice for the greater good. And Jesus Christ gave his life, was persecuted, died so that there would be a greater good. That's why the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the pain. And when it was over, he sat down at the right hand of God, which is an indication that Jesus is saying, it is finished. It is over. I can finally sit down. I can finally sit down and say, God, I have done what I was to do. He endured the cross. He didn't need to leave heaven, but he did. It was for his joy. You know what I want you to do is to think about this verse for a minute, and I want you to insert your name in this verse. I want you to read this verse, and in the blank, I want you just to insert your first name. I want you to imagine that you're the only person that Jesus is on the cross, and he is speaking to you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for David's sake, who for Mitch's sake, who for Julia's sake, who for Sandy's sake, who for my sake, endured the cross, scorned its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knows you. He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you become, God knows your name. There was a play years ago uh, in a church it was a drama about a carpenter's family family who lived in Jerusalem during the time of Christ, and they needed money, and so the Jerusalem carpenter agreed to make Roman crosses. Even his son, who was 10 years old at the time, helped out in his dad's carpentry shop, and at the end of the day, or at the end of the play, the little boy came running into his dad's shop, and he was crying as though his heart was breaking. And the family asked, what's wrong? And he just continued to sob. He said, I just saw a mob of people, and they're taking Jesus outside the city to be crucified. They'd heard Jesus teach. They'd seen his miracles. They had embraced his message of love, and they were sorry to hear about Jesus. But this little boy went on and said, Dad, there's more. They're crucifying Jesus on one of the crosses that we made. And his dad said, no, son, there are many cross builders here in Rome. There are many here in Jerusalem. And then he said, there's probably not ours. And the little boy said, no, you don't understand. The other day, after I finished one of our crosses, I was proud of my work. And, and so I signed my name at the bottom of that cross. And he said, as they led Jesus outside the city a few minutes ago, he fell beneath the weight of that cross right in front of me, and I looked at the cross, and he said right there, I saw my name 
right in front of me on that cross where Jesus was carrying. And friends, if you look closely at the cross, your name is all over it. So is mine. The name that you bear is on the cross because Jesus bore the sins of the world. And if it had only been you, he would have borne your sin alone. Because that is the extent of God's love. That's how much he loved you. He sacrificed for you, and because of that, we sacrifice in return. Because we know he died. The Bible says if you're going to follow him, you die to yourself as well. You say, God, I want your goals to be my goals. I want your plan to be my plan. As you endured suffering, I want to endure suffering with the same attitude and hope. How many of you like the ministry of Dr. Tony Evans on the radio or television? And a few of you, and I, I heard years ago him speak uh, and tell a story that I thought was very compelling, and I, I won't tell it with the same emphasis that Dr. Evans does, but I want to share it with you. He said the true story is told of a famous chess player who was on vacation in Europe. One of the things he liked to do during his time off was to visit art galleries and an- analyze various types of art, particularly on the European continent. And this chess player came to a particular gallery and began to browse And as he did, he came upon a particular portrait. It was a painting like he'd never seen before. It was a painting of a chess game. Being a chess champion, he, of course, was enthralled by it. But this particular painting was unique because on one side of the chessboard was the devil. He was laughing and full of hilarity. He was rocking back and forth. His hand was already ready to make a move on the board. And on the other side was a young man, very cheerful, very nervous. Tears ran down his face, sweat ran off his forehead, his teeth were chattering, his knees were knocking, and he was in utter terror. The chess champion understood what was all about to happen when he looked at the top of the painting and saw the words, checkmate. The devil was about to make the last move to win this young man's soul, and the man was in utter uh, disarray. So enthralled was this chess champion by this particular portrait that he stood and stared and analyzed and looked at it for almost six hours. It captivated him. About six hours, however, he finally looked at that portrait again, and he was pretty interested in something that he noticed. He called the proprietor over and said, do you happen to have a chess board here? They scurried about. They found him an old chess board, and he laid it out just below the painting. He configured it just as the portrait showed. After a few moments of looking at the board, looking at the painting, looking at the board, looking at the painting, he began to smile. He turned ever so slightly to the picture and the painting of the young man who was so utterly terrified. He said, young man, I wish that you could hear me right now because I've got some good news. I sure wish I could animate you and give you life because things are not nearly as bad as they appear. I know they don't look real good, but you have to understand I'm a chess champion and the devil only thinks he gets to make the last move. You see, there's another move on this board. He hasn't seen it. And if I could just bring you to life, I'd show you that move. Take your fingers out of your mouth. You stop your knees from buckling, your teeth from chattering. You would begin to smile again and take the joy off the devil's face because you, not he, gets to make the final move. And friends, when you look at the world in which we live at right now, it looks as if the devil is making the final move. You look around at the hardship and the challenges and the difficulties of this life and maybe in your own life. And it looks like the devil is laughing in hilarity. But friends, I want you to know that he is not going to make the final move. And we see this all through the Bible. In Genesis, we look at the world as perhaps the unfolding of a chess game. 
God moves. Then Lucifer, the archangel, counter moves, and he makes himself like the Most High. God counters that move by creating a whole new group of people to worship him, mankind. Satan counters that move by showing up in the garden, subverting God's plan and bringing man under his dominion. God counters that move by slaying an animal and providing a redemptive covering for fallen man. Satan counters that move by getting Cain to murder Abel in order to cut off the godly line. God counters that move by reintroducing the godly line through the birth of Seth. Satan takes to cut, tries to cut that move off by getting the whole world to deny and denounce and rebel against God. And God counters that move by finding a man that was godly named Noah and his family, telling them that they need to build a boat on dry ground and giving him that one phrase sermon, it's going to rain. The whole world is judged. But through this, God reintroduces the human race through his own, a man named Noah. But then out came a man called Nimrod under the tutelage of the evil one who established kingdoms to try to have a man build a tower and live apart from the authority of God. That's when God goes to Ur and finds a man named Abraham and says that he will build his own nation that will obey. But that nation is taken hostage in a place called Egypt and evil personifies itself and God's people are held captive. And that's when God goes to Midian and finds a man named Moses and sends him back to Pharaoh and tells him to send a telegram to let my people go. And the people then are caught between a rock and a hard place. It looks like they're going to be defeated by either the Red Sea or by Pharaoh and his army. But supernaturally, again, God counter moves and God's people are delivered. And all through the Old Testament, you see this move, counter move, move, counter move. So that by the time that we end the Old Testament, it appears to be a draw. Both sides are seated at the board and stare at it for about 400 years. 400 years of silence where there's an an analysis and nobody seems to be making a move. But after 400 years, apparently, it is God's move because we find in the opening chapter of the book of Matthew, so-and-so begot so-and-so and and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so until you get down to verse 16 where it says, who begot Joseph, who was married to Mary, by whom was born Jesus Christ. And up until that time, God would find a man and he would use a man. But with the opening of this new chapter of the game, God looks down and said, I'm tired of all this mess. I'm going to come down and take care of it myself. And so God becomes a man. And by Matthew chapter 4, he pays a return visit for the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil originally came to a garden to get the first Adam kicked to the wilderness. The second Adam goes to the wilderness to defeat Satan so that you and I could be escorted back to the garden. Satan, however, looks like he's going to make the final move. He's beginning to laugh in hilarity. He's beginning to sit back. He's beginning to enjoy this moment. After all these moves and counter moves, he knows, he believes that he has defeated the plan of God. He looks like he's going to make the final move when Jesus Christ is slain on a Roman cross. It appears like he will win. But early on Easter Sunday morning, a little while before day, Mary Magdalene came to the graveyard where they had buried him, and the grave was empty. And friends, there was now no more move. This is what we celebrate. No matter what you suffer through, no matter the hardship that you face, no matter the challenges that you have, no matter the struggle against temptation, no matter the fight that you have and the unwillingness at times to submit, no matter at times the suffering and hardship through sacrifice that we have, God says, I defeated the grave. And what that tells me is that no matter the suffering, you will never walk alone. 
the Bible says that through his death on the cross, there is now no more victory for death. There is no more victory for the enemy. For all of those old order of things, they have been defeated. They have been washed away. They have been wiped clean. Jesus Christ took our payment on the cross. As a kid, we used to sing in church a song that I want you to listen to. I want you to think about the words of it. It's a very meaningful song to me, and I think it will be to you too. You're probably familiar with the chorus, but you may not know the words of the verse. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Through death into everlasting life he passed, and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation will tell. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What I want you to do for a moment is just imagine, and if you would be willing, just close your eyes. And if you would just with me, just imagine for a moment. What if, what if Christ, what if Jesus was to actually walk in the room today? Just imagine in your mind for a moment. It's not that difficult to imagine because we know it happened over 2,000 years ago. But just imagine Jesus walking into a room, this room. And in the quietness of this room, he walks to one person, that person is you. Puts his hand on your shoulder. He knows what you're going through. He understands the challenges you face. He understands the suffering that you're enduring. He understands the sin that you struggle with. He puts that arm on your shoulder as an arm of reassurance, an arm to tell you it's going to be okay, an arm to tell you that I'm still with you. I've not given up on you. And you open your eyes and you notice. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. You look into that wonderful, grace-filled face, those tear-filled eyes, that face that's reassuring, that face that says no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, you're not alone. You're not alone. Jesus didn't die for you just to give up on you. Jesus died for you so that you might be given eternal life no matter what's happened in your life, no matter what you've struggled with. You turn your eyes upon Jesus. You look full into that wonderful face. And as you do, I guarantee you that all the things of this world, all the things of this earth, all the things that you struggle with, all the sacrifices, all the hardship, all the loneliness, all the sin that you struggle with, all the loss that you've endured, all of that grows strangely dim. It grows strangely dim. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's not that it hasn't happened. It has. It's not that you're not still struggling. Maybe you are. But in light of the glory of Christ, in light of who he is, in light of that wonderful face, the things that you are enduring now grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, in light of his plan, in light of his purpose, in light of his grace. 
God, thank you. Thank you for that warm embrace. Thank you, God, for those loving eyes. Thank you, God, for that wonderful face. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. We surely need it, God. Thank you for loving us to the point of death. Thank you for enduring the cross. And God, help us as your followers to continue to battle against temptation. To be willing to submit, God, to your your discipline. And to realize that suffering does happen. If it happened to you, it will happen to us. And then God, also to be willing to make those sacrifices day in and day out. To die to self. To be willing to serve our fellow man. To be able to do it with the right attitude and the right heart. Because we know that we follow the greatest example of love ever. So God, I thank you for this moment of quietness and reflection. I thank you for a moment where we realize that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, He would have died if it was only our name on the cross. And that even though we might feel at times alone, we realize that your death was not in vain. And that you gave your very best for us so that we would realize that we have hope for eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And that your Holy Spirit would walk with us so that we would realize no matter what we endure through this life, we do not walk alone. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus.